Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you on this beautiful day. Let's look forward to continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark. We're so excited about many of the things coming up that we've announced in the video previously, and uh, we're looking forward to God really blessing those things. Would you keep our church in prayer and all those things in prayer as we enter into a very full yet very exciting summer? If you're newer to renew, this is one of those times we really get to see the DNA of this church and its servants' hearts and its desire to see people come to know Jesus Christ. It's also a time where kids will be out in the fields playing around, they'll be enjoying all this stuff. And how many of you remember the great field games of your elementary school life? Remember some of those? They were super fun and, and they, were, they were awesome to get out in the fields and do different things. And the, a, couple of them, a couple of them you remember, you kind of forget these and then, and then they come back to you over, over time. Do you remember, remember the game Red Light, Green Light? Does anybody remember that one? Were you good at it? Were you good? Did you cheat? No, no, okay, this is church, this is church, right? Remember this game though, you'd line up and uh, there was a principle behind the games. Uh, m- many of field games were taught by really super creative teachers who wanted to use a game to teach principles and you go back and find some of the roots of these games and why they were used in elementary schools and, and, you, and you find there's a lot of purpose to them and red light, green light was to teach the kids there's a, a way to follow the rules where sometimes you go and sometimes you stop, leveraging the beauty of a traffic light. You'd line up, you'd line up and, and you'd get it all going and then what would happen is there'd be a person out in the middle of the field, normally the teacher or sometimes they would pick a, a student who wanted to be a boss, right? Uh, and, and and bring them out and, and you go red light to stop and green light to go. And the point was to get to the other side first. And so the faster you could get up to speed, the better. But you had to stop when they yelled stop. And you were supposed to stop when? Immediately, there you go, all right? Mark would have loved this game. And, and so, and so you, you'd start and they go green light and you'd take off running and they would go red light and you'd stop like this. But there were some students, you know who you are. You'd change the pace of your stop. You'd, you'd, you'd envelop a couple steps. It would say green light and you go and red light. <sighs> stop, stop, what, what? What? Stop! Oh, okay, yeah, stop, stop. And, and, and before you know it, the rule followers began to yell at the non-rule followers, injustice, this is wrong, this is not how you play the game. And before you know it, it's not about the lesson being taught that there's a time to go and a time to stop. The lesson is, I'm gonna hit you if you keep doing that. And so teachers or leaders of this game would often bring in what we all love in this world, referees. And they blow the whistle if you went too far or too many steps afterwards. And so they'd be out in the field, they'd be watching, green light, ah, they'd be going, red light. He went too far, back it up. Do it one more time, you're out, you're out of this game. You're out of this game because we're watching you and we're watching your paces and you gotta play this game the right way. Oh, there are some people who live life loving to blow this whistle on people. Oh, they enjoy it. They look for things that they can do. And in this game, red light, green light, you learn there's a time to stop and a time to go but it can be crushed in the idea 
of making sure everybody's doing it the right way. You know, there's a spiritual lesson that there's a time to go and a time to stop in scripture as well. You know that scripture is full of teachings and lessons about the need to go. Consider the ant you'd sluggard. There is a time to be industrious. But there's so much teaching on the subject of rest and the importance of it. And why is that so important? Because we live in a world that is constantly competing with one another to see who can get the fastest or furthest through the journey. And, and it's a comparison trap. It's a, it's a temptation to want to keep going. And sometimes if the rules seem like they're holding us back, we want, to, we want to break those rules and get past them and do other things to just say I'm better than them or I'm better than that. And sometimes we can fill up our schedules and fill up our schedules. And if we don't sign up for that, then that child might get ahead of our child. And we can't have that happen. So we've got to sign up for that. What? It's three hours away every Saturday? Sign up. We can't not do it. And then we sign up for this over here and then we get involved in that. We we have this side hustle and this side hustle and Instagram just said, I need another side hustle, three revenue sources and I'm out here and we're going crazy. And what happens is if we don't take the time to stop, this, this will communicate, this happens. Oh man, isn't that the worst when you wake up and your cell phone looks like that? It's gonna be a day of fighting to charge this thing. Oh man, forgot to charge it all night. And when you start a day on zero and you have barely any margin mentally, you're such a joy sometimes to the people you come in contact with, aren't you? Aren't you such a joy when you're running on zero? What if you're a content creator? What if you serve in some sort of oversight and you're running on zero? What if that's mom? Hello. What if that's the kids and they're sending all the signals they're on zero? What if that's dad? What if that's grandma and grandpa? What happens when we get to zero? Because it's exhausting. And in the world we live in, that's so comparison driven, so competition driven, and we are so tempted to wanna get things done, to fix things. We even find identity in our accomplishments and it's so exhausting. And it can be at times useless. <gasps> what, 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 my efforts? It can be, no, oh, please, Chris, don't, don't get back into your lane, pastor. That's not, no, no, let me let scripture. Have you ever heard the useless statements of Psalm 127? Have you ever heard how useless life can be if you forget to add a piece to your life that was the only thing that can charge the battery? Psalm 127, share some warnings for the red light, green light people. Unless the Lord builds the house, the work of the builders is wasted. I mean, aren't we supposed to spend most of our lives building up a house? I mean, building the house, building who's in it, building how many garage doors, how many front doors, how many back porches. I mean, I mean that is it, right? You know? Okay, yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's nothing wrong with pursuing those things. But, but if the Lord's not in it, the work's wasted. How many people do we know that have built up quite themselves a legacy here on earth, but no longer have any, spiritual value in their families. 
He continues, says, you know, unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with centuries will do no good. Nothing wrong with the security measures. In fact, they're important and it demonstrates prudence. Nehemiah would tell you, they held one sword in one hand and a brick in the other. But unless God guards it, it's useless. In fact, he doubles down. Psalm says this, it is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat. For God gives rest to his loved ones. Are you a child of God? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior? Do you know that in your restology or your study of rest, that you have a heavenly father who wants to give you rest? I wanna give you rest. Sorry, we got people to beat. Green light. I wanna give you rest. I don't have time for that. I wanna give you rest. In fact, sometimes it means denying yourself. What? Have you ever thought to take up a cross and deny yourself, as we've been talking about followers in this series, will sometimes include denying yourself the temptation that God can't do it unless you do it. God can't pull this off. I've got to do it. And we work ourselves into a dead battery. Do you have those urges? Do you ever feel like your battery is about on empty? And you're going. You last through the morning pretty good. You get into the evenings, but at night you're filled with all sorts of thoughts of, I am letting the important go. And I'm dead inside. Jesus calls to that person who feels heavy. You know, massage therapists will tell you that people store their stress, okay? And oftentimes, people store their stress in their shoulders. Not true of any of us, right? They store it in their shoulders and their shoulders become tight, almost like knots, which can develop headaches, which can really hurt the physical body because they store it. And they work those muscles out and all the different things that I am definitely not aware of that go into that aspect. But it's as if their shoulders, both physically and in and, and a sense something we can't see, are heavy. They're weighed down. This is the wordage that Jesus' leverage, Jesus leverages when he says this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy. Oh, it's heavy. It's on my shoulders, heavy laden. And I will, there it is again, give you rest. Well, how do I receive this rest? Um, Cancun? Uh, Again, nothing wrong with Cancun. In fact, go for it. But that's not what he's talking about. How do I get this rest? A a week off? No, no. A trip to an amusement park? You will actually come home more exhausted and sunburned. How do I get this rest? Quit my job? You'll find another job to hate. Mm, It's true. Um, um, Get away from that person? You'll find another person you don't like because everywhere you go, there you are. So the reality is... It's not gonna be those things. That communicated, right? It's not gonna be those things. So how do I get my juice back? How do I fill up my battery? Scripture gives you a bit of a restology. And it goes all the way back into the Old Testament and it works its way into New Testament believers. And it's this idea 
that rest is built into your schedule through the law in the time of the Old Testament and through grace in the time of the new. So how do we navigate? How do we get our batteries filled? How do we deny ourselves from the desire to accomplish more, accomplish more, accomplish more, and wear out, and instead find the necessary rest to do what God has called us to do? Well, Jesus says, come to me. You don't have to spend thousands of dollars. You don't gotta go millions of miles. Come here. I want to show you. Today, I pray that one of the characteristics of our desire to follow Jesus is a willingness to come to him and learn about the importance of including rest into our schedule and the value of it, as well as the point of it. And we'll pray this, knowing God's going to be faithful to show us how through the life of Jesus in our text today. Our text is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, 23, through chapter 3, 6. If you have your journals with you, or if you've brought your scripture, I'm going to pray, and we will open the Gospel of Mark immediately. <laughs> Heavenly Father, use your word today to encourage us to think through whether we have enough stops in our life. And Lord, whether we're pushing past what we should be doing, help us to think through this with humility, knowing that you know we're from dust and we grow tired and even youths grow weary. And in a world that can be so, so competition, so comparative based, and honestly, Lord, right now, extremely discouraging. We need to find places to recharge our battery. And there's nothing wrong with going to some of the wonderful tools to give us rest, but it can never make up for what you offer through Jesus Christ. We pray we learn from this lesson today. I pray that you remove the room of distraction. I pray that you humble our hearts to hear the teaching of your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. One Sabbath. He was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, so the disciples are with them, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Picture the scene in your mind's eye. And the Pharisees, you say, my Bible doesn't have the, the logoing. I know, I just took it from last week, okay? It's just, just speaker privilege on PowerPoint, okay? The fair I sees, if you joined us, you're no more like a Pharisee than when you focus on being greater than what you see. I see, I see you didn't. We noticed, we see that you. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So the issue is the Pharisees are doing something. Excuse me, the disciples are doing something. The Pharisees have seen, I see, your disciples are plucking grain on the Sabbath. Now, what is this Sabbath? You've heard of it. The Sabbath is all the way back into the Old Testament. In the time of Exodus and Moses, Sabbath was given in the chapter 
of the 20th chapter of Exodus. I'm gonna gonna read some of the Sabbath here. Um, It says this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What, What does that mean? Holy, distinct, different, okay? So remember the Sabbath day to keep it different. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord, your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. The Sabbath day was established by God and it was used as an example of what God had done in creation. He worked for six days, on the seventh, he rested. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think he rested on the seventh day because he was tired, exhausted, batteries running low? No, no. The creator God does not need sleep. He does not slumber nor sleep, scripture says. He did it to be an example. And he gives it to his covenant people, Israel. Remember the audience. He gives it to his covenant people, Israel, the Jews, that they are to practice this as one of the 10 commandments to keep the Sabbath. This was established by God. What does the word Sabbath mean? It's a threefold meaning to it. And I think it gives you the idea behind the principle because God is giving it to them. I think in a lot of ways, God is giving it to them out of mercy as well. For he knows that in their future, there will be governing bodies over them that are ruthless on them. And that even this Sabbath will protect them at least one day from the abuses that will be done to this nation in practicing their religious aspects. But the Sabbath carries a a threefold meaning. Do you know what it is? Here's the first one. It means to cease. Literally, to stop doing something. God says, copy me. You work and then you stop. I want you to copy my example. The second aspect means to keep. There's things I want you to do regularly. It's this not one time, this is regularly. What day was the Sabbath? The Sabbath was a Saturday, the last day of the week, okay? In fact, It was always a Saturday. It remains Saturday, okay? And that Saturday being the Sabbath day is the day that even those Jewish people still will follow these Sabbath guidelines. And I know Renew Bible, we cast a larger net than just Percocy. There are people listening to us around the globe and there are people who understand in the Jewish culture this practice of Sabbath. It means to cease, it means to keep. There's an idea of remembering God on this day. And so oftentimes the nation Israel would gather and worship at the tabernacle during this time period on that day. It also means to rest. There was an aspect where God wanted them to rejoice in his creation. Rest, worship, and delight were at the heart of the Sabbath with his people Israel. And the Sabbath kind of kept these kind of emotions over the whole thing. It was created to cease, to keep, and to rest. It was a gift given to them, but they were to keep it as part of the command. But like anything, people got involved, especially the fair I sees. 
And they created more and more and more rules on Sabbath that were based from this Sabbath principle of scripture, but policed the people like you couldn't believe. There were all sorts of rules. Even the rabbis would create more rules. In fact, when a rabbi would give rules, he would often give it to his pupils, the students who followed him. And they would obviously bash other rabbis who had the others or, or didn't held as difficult ones. And people would say of certain rabbis that they were more difficult. They would say their yoke is heavy. The yoke of that rabbi is a heavy, it's a heavy yoke. Now a yoke was something that sat on the back of these large animals that would often do their work for them to keep them in control and to keep them laboring away. And so if a rabbi's yoke was heavy, it often meant they had a lot of rules, probably based out of a lot of that rabbi's preferences. I mean, people don't make rules for other people out of their preferences, right? <laughs> sure they do. And sure they did. And they came up with all sorts of rules for the Sabbath. You are not to go on a Sabbath journey. They took that ceasing and they made it a checkbox. It was no longer something that God gave that they were to obey. It was now something to police. You can only go 1,999 paces on a Sabbath journey. If you go 2,000, <whistles> violation. But what if we really need to go somewhere? Okay, okay, okay. They came up with a second rule. If you go 1,999 paces and you go, the set, you go one more, but if you pitch a tent and stay there for a little bit, like an hour or so, then you can go another 1,999. All right, all right, so if I pitch a tent, yeah, I mean, we, we, got, we got things to do possibly, okay? That's, how, that's what happens when humans make rules. There's gotta be more rules because why? Because we find loopholes, don't we? Oh, if I do this, I do this. And so a Sabbath journey, they were all over. Sabbath journey, uh-uh. Too far, too far, can't go that far. Then they had another one, the Sabbath to keep. Did you know that the animals were told in scripture that they were to Sabbath as well so that you weren't tempted to go out and use an animal? And the rabbis would come along and make extra rules like this. You, can't, you cannot minister to any animal unless they're dying. So if your animal on Sabbath dislocated its hip, we're gonna to have to wait till tomorrow. If it looks like it's gonna die, then we can get in there. If you get in there too early, <whistles> violation. You're gonna to have to let that go. But is it, shouldn't we help down? Oh, no, we've gotta keep the Sabbath. Then they came up with laws for how heavy the burden, for you're not to work or to lift too much. And so they would create laws. Here was one of them, here was one of them. You cannot lift a dried fig leaf's weight. Here's the second part of it. If you lift half of a dry fig leaf's weight twice, <whistles> violation, that's a full fig leaf. I, I mean, it's unbelievable. It, it, just for your entertainment, it's worth reading through some of the pharisaical laws that would grow up. They, 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 you, could not, you, could not, you could not lift, but you also could not throw and receive into your hand any object. So there'd be no throwing of a ball or anything up into an air and receiving that object. They had to make a second law because some asked, what if I throw it up and catch it with the other hand? <clears throat> okay, if you throw it up and catch it with the other hand, that's still <whistles> violation. 
Isn't this a great day of worship, the Sabbath? Isn't it becoming great? Is everybody loving this? This is what the Pharisees were doing. They were making it so binding. The yoke was so heavy. And then on the subject of plucking grass, in Deuteronomy, it says, you can go into your neighbor's field and see standing grass and you can take it and pluck it, but do not thresh in there. I mean, okay, you can go over and if your neighbor's got something, go ahead and pluck it, but don't get the tractor out, okay? That's their property, okay? The idea was to teach them guidelines and structure that they did not have in their society, but they would take these and double down on the rules. And the Pharisees have interpreted no plucking of grain to mean you can't touch the stuff at all. And Jesus and his disciples are going through the grain fields. And do you think Jesus randomly went through the grain fields? Come on, church. Here's some grain fields and there's some Pharisees. Come on, guys. <laughs> and they went through the grain field and the Pharisees start plucking. And the whistles, go, hey, 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 we noticed this. And he turns to them and he says, Now keep in mind something. Nobody read the Old Testament law like the Pharisees, nobody. In fact, it was a predominantly illiterate culture and therefore they leaned into the Pharisees for all their education. And so these were the teachers. These were the most read people. If anybody is gonna have been read up on the laws, it's these guys, not Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus says this to them. Remember something about Mark. Never get in an argument with Jesus. You are going down, okay? He turns to them. Have you never read what David did? No, you didn't. If anybody read, it was them. Jesus is like, have you guys, have you guys been reading? <clears throat> have you ever read what David did when he was hungry and in need? He and those who were with him? Did you guys read that story in your, in your Old Testament? <clears throat> You know they knew it. You know they knew it. He continues on. You remember, he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread in the presence. Now, now let me just real quick for my critical scholars in the room who go, wait a minute, wasn't it, it wasn't Abiathar, wasn't it? Wasn't it different than that? I mean, I, I believe Samuel, it, it says Ahimelech, well, Many, many studies have shown that there were multiple Halimedex. And keep in mind that it says in the time of Abiathar, it doesn't say while he was exactly the priest. So I think, I think we can let Jesus off the hook. He knew what he was talking about here. But we do know this. In his broad approach, he refers to a story, Abiathar, the high priest. And he ate in the bread. He ate the bread of the presence. Now, you turn to your neighbor, you're like, oh, not the bread of the presence. And some of you are like, what's the bread of the presence? You ever, remember, remember in high school, like you have the same question the person has, but you gotta act like you didn't? Yeah, like who's asking that? Please, Lord, give them the answer. I need this answer bad. I didn't know this. What is the bread of the presence? Well, let, let's travel back. Let's travel back, if you will, to Israel during the time where they camped around the tabernacle. The tabernacle was right in the middle of the camp, right? And so all their tents and tribes were set up around the tabernacle. And the tabernacle had a gate around it with a veil, a tent that you pulled that back. And as you walked in, you saw the, the place where they did the burnt 
sacrifices. Now only priests were in here and they would offer the sacrifices up and then spread the blood of the sacrifice on the four posts of the sacrifice before going to the bronze laver that sat right before the holy place and they'd wash their hands before the priests would go into where the Ark of the Covenant was to where the Holy of Holy was, God's presence in Israel. Now they had multiple veils that they put over this holy place that were all to a T given out in scripture on what to do. And only the priest would enter into that place, the holy place, and do his duty. The altar of incense were there where the smoke would arise, prayers ascending towards God. On the other side, you saw the lampposts and they would be bright and they'd light up the room for all to see. And then right over on this side, stop for a second, was the showbread. Now the showbread was very interesting because it was six loaves, not leavened, on either side, so a total of 12. Why 12? For the 12 tribes of Israel. And they represented something. They weren't to be eaten. They were to be there all day, all week. And they were only replaced one time per week. Friday, they would get these loaves ready and they would put them out in the presence of God, this bread of presence, and they put it there and it would last all week long. And that at the end of the evening sacrifice on the following Sabbath, they would be taken off and only the high priest could eat them. These laws were written in, these ceremonial laws were given to the people of Israel on how they are to worship a holy God. And to break these laws meant tragic consequences. The bread of presence was holy. It was set apart. It was symbolic that God would nourish his people, Israel. And so the bread of presence was constantly in the presence of God. Jesus says to these guys, do you remember David and what he did? You guys are asking us about what we're doing on the Sabbath. Do you remember what David did? David went into the tabernacle and ate the bread of I tell you what, David, he, he's got some things he did in scripture. David comes from running. He's the king of the time. He's the appointed one, right? And, and he comes in and he says, I, I need something to eat. And the priest says in, in verse four of 1 Samuel 21, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when we go on expedition. The vessels of the young man are holy even when, it is a, 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 even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So, so the priest gave him the holy bread for there was no bread there but the bread of presence which is removed before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day, Sabbath, when it's taken away. David goes in and eats. I mean, after all, he's the anointed one, right? Jesus leverages that situation where David has men that are in desperate need and the priest is like, at least are you ceremonially clean? Yeah, yeah, we're traveling, we're ceremonially clean. Okay, I mean, I have the, the bread of presence and David's like, great, and eats it. And Jesus leverages that, that they eat this. And Jesus says, this is my example that there's times when people are in need that the ceremonial law takes a back seat to it. What? And Jesus doubles down. 
the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to give rest. It wasn't made to police people. It was made to restore and protect my children, not to make their life awful. That's not the purpose of it. There was an overarching principle. I wanted to teach the kids there's a time to go and there's a time to stop. I didn't want to teach the kids fight and be nasty to each other as you play the game. That wasn't the point. And then Jesus drops the bomb of all bombs on these guys. See, the Pharisees went out of their way to be the lords of the Sabbath, if you will. They were the policemen. They were the ones making sure. And Jesus says this. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. <gasps> Give me the whistle. I created the game you're trying to police. I wrote the rules. I'm the enforcer of the rules. Give me your whistle. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You don't even know there is a Sabbath if it weren't for me. How? <laughs> Leveraging the bread of presence. Church, this is neat. The bread of presence was a shadow of what was to come. In fact, the entire tabernacle was a shadow of what's to come. There was only one way into the tabernacle. There would be a man who would come who would say, I am the door. I am the way to gain access to God. There was a place of sacrifice and a bronze laver to clean. There would be one who would come who would sacrifice himself, the perfect spotless lamb. And by the shedding of his blood, there could be offered the remission of sin for those who trust in him. It was a shadow of the one who was to come. When you went into the holy place, the lamp on the side was light and was the only light in the room. There would be one who would come who would say, I am the light of the world. And while the light is here, rejoice in the light. And there is one who would come and just like the showbread would lay in that holy place, he would say, I am the bread of life. I am the one who will always provide nourishment. All these things in the tabernacle that you're policing and all these things that I've given, I am now fulfilling it. For Jesus came to fulfill the law. The 10 commandments was like a school teacher teaching these people what was wrong. That's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And no one was ever gonna be able to fulfill it. The law brought death and therefore it needed a sacrifice to provide forgiveness. But when Jesus came, he fulfilled the law. And in fulfilling the law, all those who believe in him are not under that Mosaic law. They're under the new covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. And child of God, that's where you sit if you know Jesus Christ as your savior. He says, I am the bread. Don't touch the bread. I'm the bread. Give me the whistle. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You know, this probably is gonna go over pretty well, himself calling himself that with the guys, you think? No, no, it's not gonna go over that well. And it's one thing to say you're the Lord of the Sabbath, it's a whole nother to show it. Watch what happens. Again, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and a man was there with a withered hand, hand all withered up. And 
They watched Jesus, who the Pharisees, to see whether he would heal them or not on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. So Jesus is walking in to the synagogue and the Pharisees are following him with their whistles. Let's see what he does. He walks up and he sees a man with a withered hand. And look what scripture says. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. (gasps) He's not gonna heal on the Sabbath. You're not to do anything on the Sabbath. This is a violation. Let's see if he does it. He comes. And then he said to them, is it lawful? He asked the question of the room. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill it? Is it lawful to heal him or to let him die? And they're there with the whistles. That's a pretty good question. I'm not sure. What would you say? Obviously, that was conjecture. I'll show you what they say. Here's what they say. (laughs) They were silent. I got nothing. But if you touch him, we're blowing the whistle. And Jesus sees how hard their hearts are that they'd rather police their Sabbath laws than heal this man with a withered hand. And remember I told you that in the gospel of Mark, he loves to point out Jesus' emotions. Watch this. And he looked around at them with anger. I've included the all caps. It's far more than even righteous indignation. There's a fury to it, the word in its original form. And this fury is matched with a grief. He looks around and it's like, oh my word, their hearts are so hard. They could care less about this man with the withered hand. This is about whether they can police the people. He looked at their hardness of heart. And what do you think he's gonna say? I'm sorry. I've got a lot of Pharisees here, as you can see. Let's just do this tomorrow. It's gonna go bad for me and for you. I mean, look at these guys. They got their whistles. I understand, Jesus. I mean, what do you think he's gonna say? Listen, you know, I can't heal you. It's the Sabbath and you know the Sabbath. But, but when the, the Lord of the Sabbath is standing there, in front of the presence of all the whistleblowers, who are condemning this man most likely for his withered hand, he says, stretch out your hand. He held up his hand, he showed Jesus the withered hand. It's probably embarrassing for him maybe to hold it up in front of all those people. He held out his hand. And as he stretched it out, his hand was restored. And I would love the next verse to say, And the Pharisees said, that's the way it should be. It should be more about the person than the letter of the preference that we have interpreted the law to be. But instead, scripture says this. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. 
Church, can I point out something I wrote in my notes? It's wrong for Jesus in the Pharisees' eyes to heal someone on the Sabbath. That's more wrong than plotting to kill someone on the Sabbath. For that is what they're doing. They're plotting to kill Jesus on the Sabbath the very day Jesus is healing someone. It is very clear that Jesus had a message that human need at times trumps ceremonial rules. And the Lord of the Sabbath, the bread of life was standing in their presence and they could not see it because of the hardness of their heart. Some say that the Sabbath still has incredible value today. Some say the Sabbath is Old Testament Mosaic law. It has nothing to do with the New Testament believer. But are there not aspects of the Sabbath that are still extremely valuable? And in fact, those who honor a Sabbath, is there anything necessarily wrong with doing that? You'll hear people say, like, I'm taking a Sabbath today. And if you're ahead, you're always like, well, I don't know why you need to take a Sabbath. I mean, that was the Old Testament ceremonial law, or maybe it's because they were Jewish heritage and they want to follow through with the rituals of their country. All oh, that's fine, that's fine, necessarily. But if, if a person who doesn't want to take a Sabbath, what do they do? I don't, I don't really want a Sabbath. Is there anything that we can gain from this? The first thing I would say is, let's not be a Pharisee on the subject. The principle behind the Sabbath was to give a time to cease, a time to keep and reflect and worship and rejoice and rest. And that overarching principle was wonderful, far beyond the, before the whistleblowers came in. But unfortunately, many of us have grown up in a time where people tried to enforce that onto us even on Sundays or things that they felt a church should be doing or shouldn't be doing. And all of us have different preferences on how we get together and practice things. And unfortunately, there are many who have been deeply scarred by people looking at them going, I know what it's like to have someone come to me and go, I see you don't have a tie on. Okay, okay. I know people who would look at something like this thing back here. Get that off the stage. We fight over things. Some of you, I'll get off music because you're already getting tense. I don't like the color, right? Churches shouldn't have color. I literally heard that one time. Should just be white. No color. Sometimes we make laws. I remember listening as a youth pastor to someone clearly defining that anything on a screen should be still. We had these things called overhead projectors. <laughs> if it was still, it was okay. If it moved, it was sin. I, re I literally remember it. So if it moves, it's sin. Yep, <laughs> sin. This thing over here, oh my goodness, that thing right there. <laughs> a lot of you have lost a lot of time on that thing, right? Oh my goodness. But did you know that even when the organ was being introduced during the time of Reformation, it was, it was just absolutely attacked 
I can show you papers and letters and research I did when I was in seminary on the different subjects about how anything new sometimes tacked as of the devil. And are things sometimes abused? Absolutely, no doubt about it. Should there be some organizational guidelines to help move us through? No doubt about it. That's not what the point is. Let's not make it a thing where we're pointing at others and condemning them over things that are definitely preference-based. And when it comes to the Sabbath, whether it's something for the New Testament believer or not, let's remember a few principles of scripture. Here's one. Scripture says this in Colossians 2. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration, or there it is, a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. He fulfilled it. We're no longer under that law. Of all the 10 commandments, the Sabbath is the only one not repeated in the New Testament as a command form. However, if someone says, I'd like to take a Sabbath, I'd like to take a day where I cease, where I keep and I rest, by all means, why not? In fact, scripture says, if someone does that, there's ways to look at them. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The early church worshiped every day, not just Sundays. There are people like, ah, mega churches, they scare me. The first church was 3,000 people. I mean, we just have our mindsets made up of things that we are preference-based. We gotta be careful because we're so quick to pull out the whistle. When it's reality, it's a preference we don't like, but, but you still, there's still people that say, so, so do we have to keep a Sabbath or something? And I would say, renew, you don't have to. You get to. You need a restology. It doesn't have to be a Sabbath. There's no law there. But do you have anything in your life to recharge your batteries? Is there anything that you do when your battery's low? in order to restore? That principle is throughout scripture that we need times to stop. Jesus did it all the time. And I noticed you can't stay restore without the word rest. And we aren't gonna rest if we make our life about ourselves. But when he becomes greater and I become less, I want to develop a restology out, out of some sort of I have to? No, out of some I get to. My battery is dying. Who am I to go to? Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But you got to cease and come here. He said to the withered man, the only way you're getting restoration is if you come here, have you set aside time in your week for Jesus to say, come here, and you come, or you go, go, go? May I ask you to process the power of ceasing, the principle of the Sabbath that is so beautiful and given by our wonderful God. Keep, keep it. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. Part of the Sabbath was to keep God's commands to give, he gave to us. Do you have a time in your life where you cease and come to Jesus 
and read his scripture so that you can take what he tells you and keep it. It will recharge you. It will refresh your battery. The Canaan Islands are great, but you'll still probably come back tired. Taking a day off is a good idea from time to time, but it might not refresh your soul. Your soul needs Jesus. He's the only one who can rest for you. Can you cease? Can you keep? Jesus says, stretch out your hand. One of the best things you can do is during your week to take a moment to stop, to come to Jesus, turn off all distractions, put your phone on, do not disturb or turn it off. Get some music in the background that's worship music. Take time with God to rest your soul because your soul gets so tired. And we live in a very discouraging world. You need these times to get around him and recharge and learn from him because he's gentle and lowly. He's not mean and nasty. His yoke is easy. He says, I want to give you rest, child. I'm your rest. I thought if I just quit my job. No, no, it's me. It's only me. Learn from me and rest. And he says, you will find rest for your weary soul. For my yoke, his yoke, his rope is easy. And my burden, it's light. Stretch out your hand. Show me where it hurts. God, I'm struggling with forgiveness. Yeah, it's gonna eat you up and wear you out. Show me where it hurts. God, I'm struggling with this loss in my life. I know, stretch it out, stretch it out. God, God, you know what's going on in my mind. I get just this looping thought. Stretch it out, stretch it out. You're only gonna restore if you come to me. Everything else is just gonna give you guys a physical break. I wanna give my kids a spiritual recharge. Church today, if you feel like you're running on empty, I had a college student come up to, excuse me, a, a young adult director. He, he said, hey, Chris, you got any life hacks I could share on our retreat or anything like that? You got any life hacks? You know, like the life hacks, like when you find out the gas tank in your car dashboard has an arrow pointing to which side the gas tank's on in your car so you actually know when you pull into a gas tank. Like some of you maybe, if you don't know that, there's a little arrow that tells you which side the gas tank's on. He's like, that's like a life hack. You got any life hacks? I'm, I'm gonna give you one before you leave today. Here it is. It encompasses four things. But if you're having trouble in your life, going too hard and running on zero, one, incorporate aspects of the beauty of the encompassing cease, keep, and rest, even if it's for a time period. It doesn't have to be a whole day. You're in the age of grace. But here's the second thing. Young people, listen to me. If you apply this early, it's gonna help you. You've got to have a charging dock of people around you. We live in far too discouraging a world. And if you're gonna charge up spiritually, you need the body of Christ around you. There's nothing wrong with having friends you're trying to share the gospel with. There's nothing wrong with your coworkers. There's nothing wrong. These people need Jesus. But in our world, we desperately need to encircle ourselves with people who bring us life. Scripture's very clear. Bad company corrupts good character. It's not my opinion, it's scripture. Bad company corrupts good character. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 33. 
when we are around pessimistic people, when we're around angry people, when we're around lack of self-control people, when we're around these things, when we're one of the people, it wears off on us. There are four things I would tell you that you gotta have if you wanna keep living for Jesus. If I didn't have these as a pastor, I don't think I'd still be in the ministry. Here's the first one. Get yourself a godly example. You gotta have it. You gotta have a godly example, someone you listen to, emulate, respect, and gain in biblical inspiration from. Young people, you like podcasts? Get a godly example podcast. You gotta have at least one to offset everything else. Husbands, wives, we all need a godly example that we can emulate. There's a specific name or two that I go to to refresh myself on my restore times in my life. Second, get yourself a Christian friend. You need a Christian friend. If all of your friends don't know Jesus, bad company can corrupt good character. I'm not saying anything other than watch out. You gotta have somebody in there. Ladies, if you don't have that Christian friend charging you up, that you can so are prone to fall into some of the patterns of the people you're associated with, some of the people that you're trying to show Jesus to. Do you have somebody in your life who builds you up, defends you, and cheers for you, and helps you succeed? It's so important to have that. Third, get yourself a spiritual advisor. I use the ladies here. Guys, can I explain this to me? You gotta have somebody in your life you can go to for spiritual advice. I have been told my whole life and I've been so filled with mentors in my life. I've been told, Chris, always have an old man in your life who don't care anymore. It's good. They don't care anymore. And you dump on them and they're like, bring it. I don't care. It's wonderful. And I've had elderly men who have been incredible role models for me all the time. And I've lost two to go and be with the Lord already. And I always pray for an older man in my life, a spiritual advisor, someone you can be confidential with, collaborate with and be held accountable. Somebody you can convent to and they're not gonna share it with everybody or try to fix all your problems. They're just gonna listen. I had a brother in Christ say, Chris, you gotta be so careful to not bring the problems of the church home all the time. You don't wanna, and I'll, and I'll paraphrase this, poop in your own nest. You gotta live in it then. You gotta get that, offload that so you can come home to Rebecca refreshed and not necessarily just venting all your struggles on her, vice versa. And then finally, get yourself a personal disciple. Someone who you believe in, can invest into and find motivation to have a good testimony for. I noticed college students, high school students, I noticed I didn't really care about my testimony until I knew somebody was watching me. You're a senior hire in high school, find a junior hire. You're a junior hire, find a little kid in kid's town. You're a parent, find a young person. Find somebody you believe in, but senior saint, you more than anybody. You can be listening to that lie the devil says you're no longer valuable. But last time I checked, if you got a pulse, you got a purpose. And there is probably someone who could desperately need to hear from you. Pray that God would bring you or you would find someone you can invest into and reach out and pour into somebody. It changes your whole perspective. These four things I call my charging station. And I often go to them on the times when I want to restore. But never forget. When life gets exhausting, when the whistle's blowing, that Jesus goes, hey, hey. It's always a still small voice, isn't it? 
just kind of whispers it sometimes. Come here. Come here. Come here, child of God. I want to restore you. Come to me. I like the fact that Jesus came in the whirlwind with a still small voice. It reminds me that people whisper only when they're close to you. And Jesus is close to his kids. And he says, come here. I want to give you rest. Are you ever going to stop? Ask the Holy Spirit when to tell you. Red light. And get some time with Jesus to restore. Heavenly Father, use this text today to encourage our hearts to be people who have a restology, who understand that the biblical model and the wonderful, wonderful, protective God gave his Jewish covenant people a day of Sabbath. I believe to protect them. I believe to guide them, but more importantly, to help them rejoice in their sovereign creator. Jesus, you came and you fulfilled the law, but you still modeled to us times where you got away and prayed. We can't restore by simple recreation. We need to come to you. Show you where it hurts and stretch out our hand and find the restoring that only you provide. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen.